Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. This week, we welcome back Jay Dawes, PhD. Jay keeps plenty busy at the University of Colorado under his current role of coordinator of athletic performance. But today we dive into some of the research he's doing as a consultant for the Colorado State Patrol. He's been working in conjunction with Trooper Charlie Kornhauser, who heads the physical training at the Academy. The collaboration has led to some interesting findings about the status of police and trooper preparedness, as well as what fitness really means in a line of work with such a vast set of demands. To say that creating the perfect training program for our brothers and sisters in blue is a difficult task is an understatement. Hear how Dawes and Kornhauser embrace the challenge one class of cadets at a time. This is episode 199. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? John and I are sitting in my kitchen on my newly crafted concrete table. John, say hello, John. What's happening? And then Tex is in Clutch City, right? Or Clutch Town, Houston. Well, it's about to be based. No, it's about to be baseball season, so it changes over to Crush City come baseball season. Crush City in Houston. And we have El Hins, the new founder, owner, operator, and (laughs) uh, rogue operator of CrossFit Football, which has been disbanded. Callie, how are you doing? (laughs) Doing great. And she's reporting from, it looks like, uh, you know, this is uh, a yeah. This is a Homewood Suites that I rented out. I was going to say it was either a closet or an art studio, or but, like a taxidermist. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of horns back there. So what's wrong with you? I mean, but can you do both? That's the <laughs> and people, Power Athlete Nation. We have a uh, a Power Athlete Radio alum and a new guest. We have Jay Dawes on with uh, with Charlie Kornhauser and. Uh, we got a solid show today. Texas lined up another home run. Tex, why don't you take it from here and, and tell me where you see this episode going and why we have the Hens back on. So uh, Jay and I had the opportunity to connect and meet in person. So at the NSCA conference this year, and you know, all these conferences always give that opportunity to connect to the guests that we have on. You know, we meet virtually and then we meet in person. So uh, just talked about what we could potentially kind of bring back to the show and discuss since we went kind of crazy into kind of principles of training, collegiate strength and conditioning, and touched a little bit on the, the TSEC conference and the TSEC work that Jay does. This was an opportunity to really focus on that. So he presented kind of bringing in, uh, bringing in a, a couple of troopers, so Charlie being one of them, to talk about how he does physical preparation and everything for all the cadets. Uh, up in Colorado that he's working with, and we know we got a lot of force, a lot of law enforcement and military guys that may run into some of the problems that Charlie's been able to handle. And uh, Jay does his research and all this good stuff. And Jay, I'm sure y'all can explain where y'all met, the connection, and then the the goals of y'all's working relationship, and present to our listeners what we can take away this episode. So. I'll hand it, pass the baton to y'all and let you introduce yourselves. All right, easy enough. Well, I tell you what, I'll uh, probably talk less and listen more today. I'll probably let Charlie do a lot of the talking because this guy, I mean, he's doing it every day. But uh, yeah, originally we uh, we got connected. I uh, was working at a Corpus Christi, Texas for about three years and did a lot with the Corpus Christi Police Department. And uh, there was one gentleman that I worked with down there who I was uh, hoping to get prepared for at FBI Academy. And when I moved to Colorado, he got me introduced to another gentleman that he had gone through the academy with. Um, that, that individual got me connected with uh, both Ryan Holmes and Charlie, and uh, kind of the rest is history. I guess that's been about three and a half years now. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been an interesting journey. We've, we've kind of got to dabble in a lot of different areas, you know, as far as physical preparation for law enforcement in particular, you know. But the cool thing for me is, you know, as I've said before, just because you're standing in the garage doesn't make you a car. So, I mean, from my skill set, you know, I look at it from the, the performance aspects, the injury prevention aspects. You know, Charlie, he has that skill set as well as actually being a trooper as well. So, you know, as far as working relationship-wise, I mean, you know, it's probably this is the most fun that I, that I get to have in my, in my job is getting to work with these guys and, and helping them out. And, you know, really my role is more support. So, you know, if they have challenges and there's things that, uh, you know, they're trying to accomplish is trying to figure out a way to help support them and, and get them the information they need to, to help make good decisions. And uh, it, it like to, it's, it's a real um, easy working relationship because, you know, Charlie, I, I joke about it. I was like, 
more or less, I would almost grant him an unofficial PhD. This guy is just a wealth of knowledge in, in all these different areas. And he's getting uncomfortable with the amount that I'm putting on. Him. But no, all kidding aside, man, like this is a great group to work with. We're doing a lot of really great things. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we'll get to speak out at the NSA PSAC conference here in April about some of the stuff that we're doing. But, uh, yeah, so you guys will get kind of the, the prelim on that today and get to hear a little bit more about what we're doing. So, And we uh, we invited Miss Ms. Hins Hinsman to join us to kind of bridge the gap between her understanding of the power athlete methodology approach and then things that she faced, the challenges, kind of integrating her training that she was going to hit with all the education and new responsibilities that she had at the academy. So let's kick it off. Callie, do you have any questions to kind of uh, – to lead the way? Um, nothing specific right now, but I know we were talking a little bit before the show started about the minimum requirements to even um, get into the academy and then the physicality of the academy itself. And I think, uh, I'm sure Charlie can talk a little bit more on this, how the academies really differ from state to state or department to department, like tremendously. Um, and so I'm just curious as to, in Colorado, is does the whole state attend one academy and then, um, and then it filters out to each department or does each department put on their own? Well, while I'm aware that a lot of states do uh, all attend a single academy and then go get further training at their respective agencies, in Colorado, each respective agency is responsible for training their officers. So it's all done under the umbrella of Colorado Post, so Peace Officer Standards Training. Um, Colorado Post dictates what the minimum requirements for acad academies are, but each agency or organization would administrate that um, in, in, their own, in their own accord. So Colorado State Patrol Academy, we're responsible only for Colorado State Troopers and then some other uh, contracted colleges that will have a basic law enforcement training program. But those, those students coming through are paying to go through or may be sponsored by a different agency. And then they, the minimum requirements will go to their agency and, and, and have to adhere to those standards. But for, for Colorado, we are specifically responsible as state patrol for just state troopers. And how many cadets do you have at one time? Is it 150, 300? No, no, much, much smaller. It varies from class to class. And a lot of it depends on the fiscal budgets that are available. But at, at, Currently, right now, we're sitting at 26 cadets in this class, and we run two, two academies per year. So that 26 is not even close to keeping up with attrition. Uh, we'd like to run a lot more, but due to ap limited applications, limited qualified applicants, fiscal restraints, uh, the, the numbers are smaller than we'd like to see them. In the past, we've had academies of 50 to 60, and that's, that's about as much as our infrastructure can really handle. But right now, we're sitting at 26, and, and that number can 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 wane as time goes. So what does some of your training look like so we can kind of lay the groundwork? Do you? Sure. Uh, and sure. is this a three month, six months academy? How long did that last? Yes, yeah, so, so this academy is 22 weeks. So we're, we're just a little bit shy of, of six months. And um, starting from the very beginning, there's now, uh, this has changed recently, there's now an applicant um, hiring standard as far as physical. And most of my answers are gonna be geared towards the physical um, arena, as I think that's really what we're here to talk about. But starting the very beginning, applicants have to meet a, a standard that is pretty mundane and, and nominal figures for the most part, I think, to the naked eye. But this standard is, is now based around injury prevention um, and, and prospective injury potential. So cadets have to meet this so that we can say, yes, they're trainable. Then when they come into the academy, starting from the very first week, they have four, four mornings a week of physical training. And each, each morning is about 45 minutes in duration. And um, my counterpart and I that, that are responsible for administrating the physical standards program really use a, a blocked model. And we start them off with just general conditioning uh, movement patterns, um, getting used to moving their bodies in free space. One of the challenges that, that I'm sure Callie can speak to having witnesses first, firsthand is you don't know where these people come from and what their physical background is. So getting everybody on the same page, having the ability to perform solid movement patterns becomes important. So we block program this all the way up into an undulating model where, uh, where we're just throwing lots of different functional movements at them at a time at a high intensity protocol. So th this is a progressive thing that goes on for the entire six months of their training here. And then they have a, they have a 
different standard they have to meet to, to hit the road as it So I'm curious how things have changed over the last three and a half years when you met Jay. So were there standards in place for you to measure success, aptitude over that six months period, 22 week period? And then how have things changed over the last three and a half years for what you got? Change, change is probably the most underrated term that I could, uh, could even use to describe what has happened in the past three and a half years. As far as the training that a cadet would experience within the six months, the training probably hasn't differed a whole lot because what it takes for Colorado State Patrol Training Academy to roll out a qualified trooper hasn't changed. However, how we pre-qualify that person and then how we substantiate those qualifications, those descriptions have changed tremendously. So a short answer is they do the same things in the academy. But now we know and we can describe in very clear and convincing terms what what that is, um, what is most healthy for this person as far as their state entering the academy, and then what it is that they have to do to, to leave in a prepared state. So the training hasn't changed. The, the front and the back of their training has changed greatly. So Jay has been um, just absolutely indispensable in, in what he's done as far as the research we've, we've done. We have tested enormous quantities of troopers. We have tested, um, we've done a lot of historical data retrospective uh, research to look at injuries within the academy. So what has, what has changed everything? Um, except for the training itself. Because at the end of the day, to do the job of a trooper, that is what it is. How we describe it, how we, um, how we really justify it, that is what has changed. Is that fair, Jay? So then in terms of the training, text, do we get to echo? Uh, in terms of, give, give us an example of in terms of uh, just kind of that introductory GPP. You know, I, I can certainly appreciate uh, you don't know what type of mix of trooper or cadet you're going to get coming into this thing. So you might got a guy who's never stepped foot in like uh, organized conditioning or training program. But then you might have some, you know, D3 lacrosse all-star, right? Like, uh, like Tex McQuilkin. Uh, who can who can handle anything? So uh, so, what does it look like? It's a that's that's a really good question, and I think the part that I'm I'm most entertained by is we take for granted a lot what in shape means. What does it mean to be in shape? So when we look at the components of fitness. I can get somebody that's a fantastic marathon runner or an ultra marathon runner, an Ironman, but their their VO two max is through the roof. Their endurance capabilities are beyond anything I will ever be capable of, that does not mean that they are a substantially qualified tactical athlete. So when we're talking about a tactical athlete, this is something that transcends different components of fitness and goes across the board. So the first thing I, I want to say is I don't think we should ever take for granted what in shape means. Just because somebody's a great power lifter or a great endurance athlete doesn't mean they can do the things in between those two spectrums. So, so the training really starts to incorporate all of the components of fitness um, looking at metabolic pathways is my favorite um, model of, of fitness assessments and, and making sure that we're training people across all three of the metabolic pathways because th that's something that people don't really train for uh, and something that I think is necessary for the tactical athlete because what a trooper may be called upon to do on a daily basis is 100% unknown. Who knows what they're going to be called upon to do? They may have to push a car. They may have to run a mile and anything in between, uh, including 100% stagnation. So having the ability to do those things efficiently is something that, that that same D3 lacrosse athlete may or may not have the ability to do. So the first thing I have to say is we just don't take anything for granted. I mean, policemen are power athletes for sure. Callie, can you attest to any, I guess, things that you learned that are just lessons that either you found a connection that the academy was teaching just in a different, I guess, vernacular, but the same principle? As I mentioned to them before the show, we our physical training was replaced with a lot of crisis intervention training, and that was due to being under the supervision of the DOJ. And, um, but you know, it's, it's just funny that he mentions just the broad spectrum of demands. And, um, you know, this is kind of one of the things that I grapple with because you do, you do everything from push a car to um, do other explosive things, to change a direction, to um, things that might require uh, 
um, you know, a longer duration um, and, a, and a better conditioning. But, uh, you know, that being said, I'm just curious as to Charlie and Jay's thoughts on, you said the training hasn't changed much. Maybe your approach to the training is, has differed a little bit and you have um, more context and, and more uh, research but um, do you feel that the training still truly reflects the demands of, of the job? And kind of side question is with a job that does uh, have such a, such a huge, um, I don't know, a broad spectrum of demands. I mean, how do you even wrap your mind around creating a training system in 22 weeks to, to prepare um, your guys and your gals? So, so the first part of that, um, do I feel like um, that we can say uh, that it that it is an encompassing system that begins to touch on what these people need to do? Not only can I say it convincingly, I can point to the studies that that Jay has done and the publications that are getting ready to come out that will speak very convincingly to that fact that we now are beginning to understand what are the demands of police work and. and that huge spectrum of, of physical tasks is so broad. How do, how do we begin to define that? We, we've done a lot of, a lot of research in, in what it takes. We, we brought in um, 305 troopers and put them through critical job task testing that they all said through surveys, uh, this is what we have to do on a daily basis. We had them rate the criticality of the task, the frequency of the task, um, and the difficulty of that task to them. And then, then after categorizing all these things, we, we tested these people on these events. So not only can we say that the training leads up to the proficiency in these tasks, but we have the, the data and the research to show that that's actually what happens. Now, the second part of your question, how do we begin to, how do we begin to tackle that task in 22 weeks? Um, difficultly. It's, it's not the easiest thing on the planet. The programming becomes important. The, um, the applicant's abilities become important beforehand because what, what we began to find is through injury, um, really potentiation, somebody's ability to be trained is absolutely the, the, biggest, the biggest catalyst of their success in the academy. If they are so deconditioned that they don't have the ability to train for what it takes to be a trooper, it's very hard to get that person to be a trooper. So the pre-hire pre standards that we began to incorporate last year, those started to become very, very important and overwhelmingly necessary as we started seeing our attrition rates in the academy extraordinarily high due to injuries that have occurred since the beginning of the academy in 1935. People will always be injured in training if they're unprepared for the training. So one thing we decided we cannot do is lower the bar. We can't train to the lowest common denominator just so that they they can get through the academy. That is not setting them up for success uh, for the solo trooper riding in rural Colorado with backup or any assistance three hours away from them. So having them have the ability to do the job in a 22-week uh, scope, difficult. But through, uh, through a lot of programming, through Jay's assistance, we have, we, I think we've created a pretty quality program that's blocked off for, for four days a week through, for 22 weeks. So the rest becomes just as important as the programming time. Um, and, and I think we've seen a lot of success over the past few years. Any input, Jay? Yeah. Well, I think like, you know, as Charlie kind of alluded to, you know, when we first started talking about creating standards for the academy and trying to, because I mean, the big thing is it, it's, it's got to be defendable, you know, because the last thing you want to do is be sitting in a courtroom because somebody sued because they don't feel like they were, or they feel like they were discriminated against you want to have an explanation or rationale for why you chose the numbers you chose. So, you know, after a lot of conversations between, you know, Charlie and, and Ryan, Charlie's counterpart, myself, you know, what it mostly got down to was injury. So basically, if, if the cadets did not get injured during training, then more or less, majority of people tend to get through. But yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So looking at that, that became kind of our factor that we looked at. Like, so basically, we just, we, we took the entire group and, what I did, it, it wasn't rocket surgery by any means. So I just looked at, okay, here's the people who successfully complete the academy. Here's the people who do not successfully complete the academy due to injury. And injury to the point where they had to actually exit the academy. Um, so looking at that, significant differences were found in the mean scores on all the fitness tests for the group that had to exit. 
So at that point, it just gets back down to, okay, now that we've identified that they are less fit individuals, what test best predict who's going to get hurt and who's not? So after going through some different, you know, different types of statistical analysis and things like that, what we ended up doing is we found out the uh, beach test or the 20 meter multi-stage fitness test was probably our best predictor. Um, right along with push-ups was number two. So, you know, one of the big challenges is, you know, with push-ups, there's always like this various connotation that it's going to discriminate against females and things of that nature. So we didn't want to necessarily just hang our hat on that. And plus, push-ups wasn't really the best predictor in and of itself. But what we found is like the, the multi-stage fitness test, if you scored under 39 shuttles on that, there was a 58% chance that you were not going to complete the academy successfully. Um, with push-ups, if you had under 32, there was a 28% chance that you wouldn't get through successfully. But once we combined both those numbers, it went up to an 83% likelihood that you're not going to make it through. So long story short, what it gets down to is like, if you're terrible at endurance, you better be really good at your push-ups, muscular endurance. <laughs> if you're terrible at this, then you better be good at that. If you're bad at both, it's probably better to go home, get more fit, and come back next time. So the good thing about it is, is and the approach that we've taken, is it's, it's more of a duty of care standpoint. Because, you know, as professionals, like, if we know that this individual is, one, more likely to get hurt and not successfully complete the academy, do we have some kind of responsibility to them to protect them from themselves, basically? So, you know, it's one of those things where, and we've talked about this before, I'm sure at some point it will get challenged. Um, but at this stage of the game, I'm pretty darn confident with our standard and what we came up with. We did a validation study. So that was based off of three years of um, data. We recently did a validation study on the group that came in, in in July. And so basically, Charlie and Ryan, they wrote down all the names of the individuals who, um, based on our prediction, would not make it through. I think what were 11 out of 12? 11 out of 12. Yeah. So we predicted accurately 11 out of 12 individuals who did not make it based on their, their fitness level. Um, and then I think the, the other person was basically, due to some of the, obviously, you know, cops are... On, you know, being attacked right now. And I think it was after some of the shootings in Baton Rouge and whatnot, they came back and they just said, yeah, our family doesn't want me doing that. Um, I think that was mm -hmm. kind of the, the gist of it. But so we're really, really confident with kind of our entry level standard and, and where we are with that. Um, at this stage, you know, now we're trying to look at, I, I guess kind of backing up, the big thing that we're looking at is that we're not necessarily assessing whether you're going to be a good officer or not within that. We're just assessing your ability to train. So do you have the capacity to get through this training block? We're not saying you're going to be great at the job. We're just saying that you can get through the training. And then, you know, if we know you can get through the training. It kind of falls on the responsibility of the instructors to make the assessment as to whether they're going to be proficient in their skill set when they get on the job. Uh, this is kind of an analog to just a training camp for a sport, let's say. Let's say football, high school football, college football, right? Uh, academy being training camp. And then once the, the officer makes it through academy and is – out, you know, feet on the street, it's kind of that in season, except it's a, a much longer timeline in terms of seasonality, right? Um, is there plans, and of, uh, are there plans, I should say, to, to go beyond the, the academy and maybe even into active duty uh, and look at, um, you know, I guess injury, injury rates due to non-combative scenarios or something like that, you know, uh, where, where training could have mitigated some sort of injury response to a physical task in the field. Does that make, does that make sense? Absolutely, Carol, I should take that. Yeah, I think um, that makes perfect sense. And yes, that is absolutely something we have started looking at. But right off the bat, I'm gonna tell you that one of the big problems that I think we will run into is that unknown element of, of a trooper or officer's daily tasks. So, one, one ability we, we had in the academy scenario was we could look at injury potential in a very known and prescribed environment. We know exactly what it is a cadet will be doing long before they ever do that event. So when we're looking at injury trends, what, what, is, what is causing the injury? Why is it causing the injury? And then how do we mitigate that process? With troopers that are on the street, on duty, uh, in action, what they are doing to, to cause themselves injury is just such a, again, a, to, to use the term broad spectrum of, of events that it's very hard to wrap your mind around. So we've looked at that. We've gone down that path. We are investigating it. I'm hopeful that we can pull something out, flesh some type of trend out of it. Um, 
because at the end of the day, a hurt trooper is very, very useless to the mission of the Colorado State Patrol. So we want healthy troopers out there doing the job that the public expects. Um, can we get there? I'm hopeful. I'm a little reticent to say that that's going to happen. Uh, we've looked at a couple of different elements from both the injury perspective and the performance aspect. What does it take to do the job? And can we get people more proficient or effective in those abilities? What do you got, Yeah, I mean, I think injury, it, it's, it's one of those things where you just never know, right? So that's the challenge of trying to do any kind of like meaningful research with it is hopefully you know, over time you collect all this data and you start to see trends and, and things of that nature. But it's really difficult to pinpoint certain things. Just, you're going to have that trooper who's just horrifically out of shape and may choose to engage or not engage in certain activities on the job that are going to either elevate or decrease that risk. You know, so case in point, like I, I know for a fact, you know, in different organizations, there's been people who say, hey, I'm not going to be able to catch this guy, so I'm not going. You know, I, I'm not going to even put myself in that situation. So, you know, that gets into a whole other host of issues that goes along with that. But, you know, I think at this point where we've got is, you know, look at the job task analysis um, that's required for a Colorado State Trooper. We went back in and we tried to break down each one of the essential job tasks and try to find some way to put a number on it and to actually measure it. Um, you know, we were kind of asked to you know, go down the path of validation, which is a very, it, long story short, it's like kicking a hornet's nest, basically. Because it, nobody's gonna be happy with it no matter what happens. Anytime you tell somebody that they may not be able to do the job, they get sad and have to be really, really sure that you're putting good information forward. So, you know, with every single job task that we um, analyzed, we had at least four subject matter experts watching the skills to say, pass, fail, proficient, not proficient. So, you know, for me, from my standpoint, like as being the numbers guy on the side of that, once they tell me, hey, this is good, we can get drilled down to a number relatively easier, at least to range of numbers to say, hey, people who tend to look like this are the ones who are more proficient in these job tasks. So, with that being said, I think we may be closer on that front than we actually are on the injury portion of it at this point. Um, but I will say that, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, whether in, in the years that I've been fortunate enough to do this, whether it's SWAT, canine, bomb, you know, cadets, full-time officers, it's the people who are exceptionally okay at all of these different skill sets that tend to do the best. You know, so it's not necessarily the strongest or the most powerful that are the best. It's not ones who endure, uh, like, you know, marathon capacity that are the best. It's the people across the board that are pretty remarkably average in everything that tend to do well because they're pretty good at a lot of different things. And I think, you know, as Charlie spoke to with the diversity of the skill sets necessary, you kind of want to have that athlete, if you will, that's going to be able to accommodate and handle a lot of different scenarios in a lot of different situations. Remarkably average, Callie. That's good news for you. I mean, I, that's how I describe you to all my friends who ask about you. That's also how I describe myself. So <laughs> that's great. I think uh, another um, kind of intangible with the, the physical training aspect of all of this is, yeah, there's the physical carryover to the unknown, unknowable um, but there's this other, like, this, this other whole spectrum of its application in terms of um, being able to keep your stress down and think through a situation. So, um, you know, I'm just curious if you guys have seen as people's physicality improves, as they become more generally fit, um, you know, injury can be a result of a lot of different things, making a poor decision, putting yourself in a situation um, that you may not have otherwise done had you been more confident, had your, had your um, uh, physical capabilities uh, kept your, your heart rate down and enabled you to think clearly through a situation. So I'm just curious if you guys have, um, you know, have had any experience with that as well. How long do we have for this conversation? <laughs> Are we looking like at an eight-hour conversation? Because we might start scratching the surface if we're eight, nine hours. Yeah. You know, real, real quickly, we have looked at some of these things. And we've had, um, I think probably the best way to describe it is, is kind of like an ANOF validation. We've had a panel of experts watch people through events and rate their decision-making under fatigue in stressful situations. And it's, it's something that's pretty, um, pretty overwhelming. We, we know anecdotally that the more fit person has more reserve, they have more gas in the tank, they're able to make healthier and better decisions 
when they're uh, under stress. And, and just like you alluded to, Kelly, some of the intangibles, um, some of the their training, their experience, these are all things that start weighing in there. All things being equal, I would rather have more gas in the tank and, and rely on it to make a better decision. But there are so many different things that come into this. When we were looking at that, um, it's something that we will begin to flesh out over time. I can tell you right now, we have no definitive answers. At least I don't think so on that topic. No, I mean, as far as an assessment goes, it gets really, really tricky um, as far as how you how you assess it from a defensible standpoint. So that that's the big thing is like, and, and I get a lot of times people get really upset because I always go back to the defensibility element. So bottom line, I have it fully within my mind that I'm going to be standing in front of a judge and jury one day and I have to say, this is why we picked this number and, and for these reasons. So, you know, I think one of the challenges, like with a lot of the, uh, you know, cognitive based tests and assessments, you know, Charlie and I, it's funny, we should just practically one day had a think tank just come trying to figure out all the ways that we could assess that particular quality. Um, you know, I think one of the major challenges, though, is we're also assessing that in a relatively controlled environment. So, you know, at the end of the day, when we get done with the assessments, for the most part, other than the stress of being evaluated by your peers, everybody knows they're going home. You know, so we know that that's one of the limitations of what we're going to be looking at. Um, but, you know, how that translates to what's actually happening out on the road and on the street, that's a really different, different scenario as well. And, I think, and Jimmy shuts me down when I bring up, you know, like killing somebody in training. Jay's not a big so, fan of that. Um, he, feels like we might get sued or something. And so like, apparently we have to keep it relatively clinical. Yeah, I was going to ask you one question. Do you find it interesting or a little depressing the fact that the majority of your job is put in delight to try to make it defensible in court to tell people that they're out of shape and unable to do the job, that all of these resources and times and your efforts, and you guys are intelligent guys, are meant for somebody to cover their ass above you instead of looking at how to make state troopers better, more qualified. Like Universal Soldier, like well, that no, old movie. Remember that with Van Well, Dan? no, I mean, it's, um, uh, I kind of play this little game. Anytime I interact with any police and, you know, uh, I did some, I've worked with law enforcement quite often. I always think if this was a stressful situation, could one, could this person catch me or two, could they actually fight me off? And um, I actually was uh, uh, Tony Blower. Um, you guys know Tony does the spear stuff. I, uh, Tony had a class this weekend for the law enforcement and I went over and joined in and hung out with a, with a bunch of cops that were there and I got to actually do some force on force stuff with them. And it was pretty interesting where uh, after about two seconds, every one of them was like, I would shoot you. <laughs> and I was like, well, you have to be able to get your gun out. And that was a big thing in a tussle. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty interesting, but, you know, asking and I, I kind of probed all these guys and said, hey, you know, what's your biggest driving training? And their whole deal was, you know, it should be for every cop is to go home at the end of, end of your shift, which is, you know, what uh, Sean Connery said at the, you know, for uh, the untouchables. But, uh, you know, every one of those guys was like, you know, the last thing I want to do is get involved with somebody like you in this type of situation. And I know that I'm going to lose. And I'm like, God, isn't that, a, isn't that a driver to train? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, then how come you guys don't train harder? How come you guys aren't doing these things? And, you know, it was always uh, time, budget, all, you know, the, every other excuse. And so as I'm sitting here listening to this, I'm thinking to myself, somebody above you guys doesn't want to get sued. So they put you guys in a position to analyze all this information and find the best way to attack it so that you guys can make it defensible in court, which um, to me is a fucking travesty of, year, of use for you guys. Yeah, for your resources. Yeah, for, uh, of resources and, and, and that. And, and uh, you know, and all it came down to is we don't really know what you guys are going to um, – encounter out on the street even though we've you know role played game planned you know looked at every single scenario we don't know what you're going to encounter and Callie was my favorite I remember you know after she'd been on the force for five or six months I was like is it like you thought and she's like no and the story she's like I don't know how we would ever train for this and she actually brought up a point that they stopped doing PT and they were doing crisis management Kelly what does that mean does that mean sitting around talking like kumbaya and talking about feelings and how not to hurt feelings instead of training uh, I'm not sure if I can legally describe it as that, but it's not kumbaya. It's not kumbaya. John, it's crisis, crisis intervention, okay? Dealing with people's mental illnesses and um, an array of uh, mental health issues. That's is that because a lot of the tasks, like the, the engagement you in your area is with that, that with people that are on drugs and potentially um, mentally unstable it you know the the basis for it is um 
the, the basis for it is arm police officers with uh, the ability to de-escalate situations with people who are, who are otherwise, um, they're in crisis, which is a super broad term, right? But um, it's, it's not to escalate things. In other words, if you, can't, if you can't control someone's actions, their behaviors, the way the, you know, the disturbance that they're causing, um, the, the idea is that the old school mentality was that, well, then we'll have to use control tactics or force to control the situation. And um, the new thought is that if we can de-escalate through verbalization techniques and other, you know, uh, other active listening and things like that, that hopefully we can, we can turn the situation around without escalating and using force. And so, um, you know. So you're saying that both you guys are just trying to really, it's, it, I feel like you guys are like, uh, um, you know, like listening to this, it seems like, um, you remember at recess when we were little kids, there were like the, the adults that were there that had whistles, uh, what were they called, like the yard, the, the yard duties? I mean, it's basically what you guys are talking. I mean, well, um, like something like that. Which, well, I mean, I think that the, the, it's more of a formality that they incorporate it in a lot of training now because I, I can, I think Charlie can probably attest to this. Police officers and troopers have been doing this for forever, right? And it can be a learned skill, but it's more of something that you just learn through experience, right? I mean, when you, hard, yeah. It's, yeah, it's like when you have kids, you just, you learn, you, nothing really prepares you for it. You just learn how to, you could have taken all sorts of parenting classes beforehand, but nothing's going to prepare you for a completely out of control situation where you, you know that you really shouldn't be like punching your kids in the mouth, you know? <laughs> and, and so you have to, you have to equip yourself with other tools. And so this is kind of like a, uh, cover your basis thing. So I guess, uh, Jay, Charlie, I don't know, the general response, do you feel that you're, you're stifled into kind of uh, misappropriating your expertise or do you think that there, it, it, it all kind of builds upon each other to uh, help the end state of a, an officer on duty? Honestly, it builds on itself. You know, so when I was in corporate like I was actually, uh, part of what I did was boots on the ground working with the cadets. So similar to what Charlie does here. Uh, but I came in from a uh, university and I assisted their, their instructors there. So you know, down there, the, they were going through the same thing. They were going through a lawsuit situation where the, basically there was, there was five female cadets that sued the city um, because they could not do 22 push-ups. And I was asked, like, is that unreasonable? I said, well, it's not unreasonable, but I can't prove it makes you a good officer. So that kind of analyzed the challenge with that from a defensibility standpoint. Um, because they basically thought it was a weed out tool to not have these, you know, not have females in the force. So, you know, that, that was a whole road that we went down and long story short, what I told them was like, look, here's the minimum standards that you guys have set to get through your academy. The reality of it is, is this is a minimal standard and I'm not training you to meet this standard. I'm training you to meet what capacity I think you'd have me on the street. Because for me, like, I have a vested interest. Like, one, you know, I want you to come home safe for you and your family. But two, you might be coming to protect mine. And when you get out there, I damn well want to be happy to see you and not go, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'll just handle it myself. That's a bad look. So, you know, for me, that's always in the back of my mind. That's my standard is if this person were to show up and my family is an emergency situation, is this going to be a good situation? Am I happy to see? So I was trained to that, and I think I brought that that's here as well, even though I'm not directly involved with the training here. But you know, that, to me, that is what it always gets down to. One of the other things that's a little bit more of a touchy subject is looking at with females in particular, and you know, Cali will be able to attest to this. You know, unfortunately, a lot of times, some of the females that are recruited, physical capacity-wise, they may not be at the capacity level that is necessary. Um, in order to get through the, the academy successfully and to be proficient as an officer. doesn't mean they can't do it. It's fully within their abilities. It's just they're not there yet. So, you know, one of the challenges that I have there is, you know, and, and I flat out will hold the female cadets that we had in Corpus, my look, the bottom line is whether you like it or not, if you have an individual who is in a situation where they may have the you know, idea that they want to run or they're going to try and avoid this situation, and they see a female step out of that car, you're probably going to be a target. So unfortunately, like you've got to be better than what's expected of you here because odds are you may be even more dangerous than this person because, you know, they don't know what your skill set is. They just, you know, a, a guy, a you know, big dude gets out. They see a female like, okay, here's an opportunity. 
You know, so that's what I was like, we want to make sure you're badass and can handle that. And, you know, from the skill set standpoint, I don't deal with the defensive tactics and all that. That's what they learn in the academy with, you know, people who are qualified to do that. My job is to make sure that we develop the engine and that we give you the underlying physical capacities to be able to handle those tasks. So, and try to your thoughts. You know, your question of, of do I feel stifled on this topic? Not even remotely, not, not even close. More than anything, I see this as a major opportunity um, because we have, through the overwhelming um, tendency of bureaucracies to, like you just said, stifle their people, we have created this culture that causes people to feel very entitled um, and, and by the way, these are these are my opinions, and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of that of the Colorado State Patrol or its or its command staff. So um, we have created created this culture that causes people to feel like, hey, I didn't get to play in that game, and I wanted to play, so this is unfair. Where at the very same time, those same people will recognize that there is a physical component to police work, and and not everybody has those physical capabilities. So instead of being stifled, I see it as a major opportunity to start putting some very clear uh, glasses on and looking through the scope of what's reasonable and what isn't and how do we define what it is a police officer should be able to do in this environment in the Colorado State Patrol and then how do we get people to that point so they can effectively be state troopers. Um, we, there are a lot of legal demands we work in in this legal environment that, that causes us to have to use words like defendable and defensible and worry about those things on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, while at the same time we have this vast opportunity in front of us to, to prepare people in the most reasonable way possible to do the job that the public expects. So that, that's where I start, start drawing the line, is what is it the public expects, and how do we get our people there in, in the best way possible? Text we got. Good. Um. Okay, so then, then let's take it off like the minimum requirements and maybe just this could be anecdotal. This doesn't have to be defensible or defendable. But uh, as you have guys go through academy and they get into things like uh, um, uh, defense training or firearms training, do you notice just again anecdotal correlation between, let's say, you know, standard testing, I guess, in what, what we are not standard testing, but common testing in, uh, in sports, let's say pull ups, sprints. Uh, other things that require a, maybe a higher degree of coordinative ability, uh, strength, power, speed, the people that exhibit those traits, do they acquire uh, uh, skills in that defensible tactics or firearms training? Do, do you notice that they acquire it quicker? I'm not sure if, if I'm sorry, I live my, I live my life in, in terms of very specific terms. So I don't know if I can say they get there quicker. What I can say is people that, that do certain physical tasks better do the other physical tasks better so is the person that's better uh, does more push-ups can run faster can run farther they can jump higher are they better at physical uh like defensive tactics as a trend yes obviously in every data set there are there are clusters and there are outliers um so you may have the person that's in fantastic shape but they're an absolute idiot so they make horrible decisions and have no clue what's going on around them. Um, but as a trend, does the person who, who does more push-ups run faster, run farther, jump higher, are they better at the physical job tasks? Yes. Yes. But again, it's, it's just like sports. So there's a business side, there's a potential and decision-making side. And you know, there was one guy I worked with at one point, he could jump 36 inches, but he could not land. So I, we, we nicknamed him Tackleberry, like from the Police Academy movies, because it's like full-on force. Everything he did was like 100%. It was two speeds fast and stop, and there was nothing in between. And it was one of those things like, dude, we just got to get you to turn on the governor here like, and, and realize that you got to control this a little bit. That's why he, he did not make it. But, you know, as you know, Charlie was saying, I think, you know, through some of the analysis that we're looking at, you know, just if you look at the, the upper, you know, 75 to 100% are the people who are in that range versus the bottom quartile. There are a definitive difference in fitness levels between people who are performing more successfully on the, the skills-based tests that are specific to policing versus the ones that do not. So, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, we were talking about this like off the cuff, and this is very much anecdotal, so I, I got to preface it with that. Yeah, but like beat tests, if you're under 40 on a beat test, and if you can't at least get in the range of you know 30s for a one-minute push-up sit-up test, your odds of being successful in these tasks tend to go down pretty exponentially. No, just a 
just, just a real quick aside, um, you know, the national average for uh, males and females, it, it's the nuts and bolts, but the heart of this conversation is, is the disparity between men and women in, in the law enforcement profession. And that's what the, the political higher-ups want, want to hear about. That's what they want to push. So the national average for testing processes, for applications, and new hire members of law enforcement um, agencies, it's an 80% uh, disparity rate between men and women and the pass rate. So whereas, let's say, if 90% of men are passing any given physical test in the nation, we have about 10% of the women that test passing that same test. So th there's would appear on the surface to be a pretty big issue there. I will say that in, in the last round of testing that we just did, we had a 44% disparity. We're getting close to cutting that disparity in half. So I don't think there has to be this major um, this, this major difference simply based on, on gender. Um, we're, we're getting closer. There will always be some things that biomechanics uh, will dictate, and, and genetics, unfortunately, will dictate. But just as there are very qualified females, they're very unqualified males. And, and where we train is, is to get those people, regardless of gender, qualified to do the job. That's the whole point of training. And then all these little, um, little specifics and pieces of testing and and diversity and all these little defendable or non-defendable pieces come into play is can we get those people into the training program and that's what the public and and the political higher-ups want to see is these these diverse numbers in the training program at the end of the day regardless who we have we have to train them to be a trooper or an officer and, and the public expects them to have the ability to do the job so i could care less whether they have a, a, a male or female in training I, I care a little bit when the top starts making me very unhappy because we have less but when we're starting to double the average percentage rates of the national averages, I'm feeling pretty good about the testing that we're doing. I think I think we're getting there. Well, and, you know that you know, kind of going back to that whole topic, like there's a lot of males that come through that aren't prepared for this either, you know. And like I said, there's there's a couple like women here at the state patrol. I'm genuinely frightened of. <laughs> I mean, without question. So I think yeah, as you know, you were alluding to, it's not that there's a issue with women doing that job it's picking the right people to do the job and people who are coming in with a physical skill sets realizing that hey this is going to be you know, at times a physical job you got to be prepared for that and, and fully you know aware of that so yeah i mean as you know to echo everything you guys are saying i think that's the big challenge is making sure that you know those disparities are reduced and we talk about defendable standards and things of that nature is to try to make sure that whatever the standard is set at is regardless of you know age gender religion whatever it may be, that this is what it takes to be a good officer, period. So. Um, I got a question on the, the injuries that you guys have seen. So I know you have uh, some good data on the injuries that you've, that you've seen at the academy and maybe some rough idea of, of trends outside of the academy, uh, post-academy. So can you comment on, on the, the types of injuries and in what situations you, you find them occurring most often? Yeah, so in the academy, the, the biggest injuries we see are very early on. I think actually one of those was the first 28 days of training. Within the first 28 days of training is where we see most of the injuries, and I would say most of them are falling in the lower leg or lower body um, um, hemisphere. People get injured in very simple things um, like marching, learning to march to and from class as, as a group, which is just, just part of a dynamic of training. Um, but, but people may step do something stupid like step in a pothole or slip on a on a wet on a wet roadway or be so incredibly deconditioned that they literally lack the vo2 max to walk from a classroom to a classroom and that that's we, we've seen a diagnosis seen a, seen a diagnosis from a doctor that um that, that read exactly these words patient is unaccustomed to walking and um that that's that's a hard person to train uh, now once they get out into the field, the, the trends are not just these lower body joint related injuries, uh, muscular strains in the lower body. We see a lot of uh, chronically injured backs. We see a lot of shoulder injuries, um, a lot of knee injuries, but these go all over the board once they get out because, again, the trend doesn't exist because the job is unprescribed. A lot of them also just being over the lifespan. Like if you look at just general injury trends in human beings, it's those areas. It doesn't help the fact that you have additional load carriage that you have to wear on a daily basis. That's you know in excess. Sometimes you know 
we've, we've seen anywhere from, you know, roughly eight to 10 kilo that they're having to, you know, carry strapped onto them. So that just creates additional physiological on the system and on the body. And you know, we talked about before it more or less, it's like having, you know, 20 to 25 pounds of fat on your body because it doesn't contribute to force production. It just creates more physiological burden. So, you know, downstream effect is you start seeing all those little um, you know, potential hotspot entry areas getting aggravated and, you know, depending on, you know, how much time they're on their feet or not on their feet, maybe to a quicker or lesser rate, you know, I would even make the argument, you know, as hard as it is to carry all that around, and, you know, have that weight just sitting there on you in a bad position. So, you know, it's, um, I, I think, you know, over, over the last, I think, you know, injury-wise and injury prevention, I mean, we try to look at a lot of the things that are just going to make them healthier human beings overall and really have that wellness focus of, you know, I mean, kyphosis is a big deal because you're sitting in, you know, all day long, you know, duty belt, that's going to throw, you know, into an anterior tilt. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of little things that are the cost of doing the job for these folks that have a lot of additional wear and tear on the system. So. But by the by, the unaccustomed to walking, please don't fear for the public of Colorado. That's not, they're not a trooper. <laughs> uh, but, but that does get a little scary when you see things like that. Odds are you may have to walk a little bit in the academy. So. <laughs> I thought you guys were going to say that the leading injury at the academy um, at the start was just general butt hurt. Yeah, that hurt feelings. <laughs> uh, I thought it was actually asthma. You know, <laughs> Auto. I just wanted to know: Do they do uh, a drug testing? Seeing as marijuana is like legal recreational, I just wondered if there's a drug <laughs> testing thing. Maybe it's asthma. <laughs> just confusion. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know how much I was praying before we came into this that that wouldn't even come up at all. <laughs> I don't know if there's a topic I hate more than that, so, so let's just move right past it. Uh, I, now, I, is that your opinion or the opinion of yeah, uh, uh, those above yeah. you and uh, your <laughs> superiors? <laughs> All right, so I, I do have a follow-up to avoid that. but um, So 22 weeks, and we had posed this question before the show. Somebody gets hurt, say it's week four, five, six, they're going to be out for a significant amount of time, but you still have 22 weeks to prepare them not only – skill but also physically so what's your approach um to kind of keeping everybody i guess fit to the best of their ability as they're teaching these new skills and then holding them to the same standard as they approach the end so right off the bat i'll go back to the not taking anything for granted um and not taking any of the components of fitness for granted so when we train them across the board in, in let's say the in, 10 general physical skills or, or 10 components of fitness or across the three metabolic pathways. When we start getting people pretty leveled out, uh, this really provides a good foundation for training. So if, if they do become hurt um, and they get hurt early on, if they miss enough time in training, then they're, they're not going to get to keep playing. They, they, they lose their spot. They might have to come back to another academy. And I'll tell you that the state of Colorado will very happily pay for their their injuries and they will pay for their rehabilitation and they will keep keep a position within the Colorado State Patrol for the next academy position. But once they've missed too much time and are too far behind the curve um, in skill sets or in, in classes that are required, they don't they don't get to keep participating. We'll roll them over or offer them another another job or say, if this isn't working for you, it's not working for us either. And, and hopefully you can find something that's more suited to your skill set. But uh, generally speaking, when we set this very general foundation for, for physical fitness, that tends to play well for people of all backgrounds. And they start, um, they start developing the necessary skill sets to, to, to be for, based upon being a jack of all trades and a tactical athlete across the spectrum of, of physical needs. Yeah, I think you know, one thing kind of to, to build off that too, I, I think that's one thing that people don't necessarily take into account is what's the downstream effect. From all that, so you know, an injured cadet that basically was a cadet that was going to be promised to another, you know, patrol or another station that that group doesn't get anymore. So now you've got you know less people on the road. You got people pulling you know extra shifts. You've got more stress on the instructors to you know accommodate bigger uh, you know volumes of cadets coming through. So you know it, it's not just the it's not just the cost of that one cadet that creates the, the massive issue. It's that cost plus the, the you know, physical, emotional, and financial toll that it takes on everybody else in the, in the organization as well. So it's, it's a really 
big issue to find the right people coming in the door to make sure that, you know, as an organization as a whole, that everybody's healthy and well. Well, I think it's safe to say that the, at least if you're in Colorado and you want to be a cop, you better be beep testing your butt off and doing push-ups every day because, I mean, that's your starting point, right? And then from there, Charlie, you take over and you make a machine, right? handle that for them and, and we'll we'll pick up the slack from there but you're right push up beep test you, you get good at those things um, you got a pretty good shot at least being successful and here, here's kind of the irony about that too too is and so the last round of assessment we did um most people were concerned for females about the push-up test i don't know that we had a single female fail so, the push-up test they all beasted it it was the beep test where people struggled so so going back to the original point this is all very very doable so we're not asking for extraordinary measures. And, you know, uh, I, again, that's kind of your starting place. And, you know, as we talked about before, like, I'm not saying that being able to do a beep test or being able to do a lot of push-ups will make you a good officer. I think what it means is, okay, generally people who are good at those two things are more fit human beings. And they're able to endure better um, throughout that, you know, wide spectrum of skills and abilities that they have to, to be responsible. So Jay, you said you're speaking at the TSAC, and for the audience, that's April 3rd through 6th down in Orlando, Florida. Can you kind of give us a preview of what your presentation's on? And actually, so Charlie's gonna be uh, co-presenting that as well. As I've uh, told him before, he'll be taking about 45 minutes of the presentation, I'll do five. And uh, <laughs> so, Thanks. solid on that one. Uh, but no, a lot of what we're gonna talk about is you know, the process that we've gone through with trying to help develop a validated fitness standard for the state patrol. You know, and, and a lot of it is, you know, we do look at it from a defensibility standpoint, but it is also, you know, trying to make folks aware of, hey, if you want to do your job, you want to do your job better, this is, you know, what we feel is going to be an acceptable minimal threshold for your, your fitness. So we're really just going to walk people through that process. And, you know, kind of like what we talked about with the uh, cadet data, we're going to discuss that in a little bit more detail. Um, how we got to our fitness standard in that regard, and then kind of where we are in the process now of establishing the, the standards for the incumbents. Um, so, you know, the actual boots on the ground officers and, and trying to help them come up with uh, an acceptable fitness standard to make sure that they're, you know, fit, fit for duty. <laughs> and as you said, so Tex, are you good? So as you talk about... Uh, you know, looking for that standard for boots on the ground, does that have to be, I mean, can there be some just anecdotal, can it have some slide, can it, can it be banded a little wider and be like, hey, listen, you just got to get some push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, you know, lift some weights, do some running, uh, do some defense tactics, and you should, you should be pretty good. It could be more of like a participation deal versus a testing deal. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, so... I think, again, just general fitness and health information, that's going to get them in the door as far as, okay, this is the window of what we consider to be acceptable. As you said, as far as from a testing standpoint, it's got to be pretty drilled in, uh, which, I mean, honestly, man, I will say this, out of all the research I've ever done in my career, I probably enjoy this absolutely the most because it's one of those things where, I mean, it's, you know, when you're laying in bed at 3 a.m. and you go, oh my gosh, I've got it, and then, you know, you, you feel like you're getting pulled out of bed to try and find an answer versus having to drag yourself out of bed to go get to it. So it, it's been an amazing challenge in that regard, but it is so frustrating because the hard thing about it is that you're literally trying to find the lowest common denominator. Whereas, you know, in sports it's like, okay, here's my top 10%. Let's go get them here. It's like, okay, how, how bad can you be and still be okay? You know, but you know, as you said, as far as getting general ranges, as far as fitness goes, I think you know, I have a very good idea of what we feel feel that needs to look like and you know as I was saying before with the um, you know with working with academies and stuff like that I think we're pretty vocal about expressing that and saying okay here's the minimum threshold but really to make sure that you are as good as you can possibly be and to make sure that you're safe on the job this is where we'd like to see you we definitely give that kind of guidance um, as far as participation medals I don't I mean that's everything that's wrong with <laughs> yeah so I mean, here's an award for participation yeah, I mean, it's that, it's good. Uh, I don't know how to even address this. 
Next Always. question. <laughs> well, I mean, how do you guys how do you guys uh, handle seeing your academy graduates go on in their career, and then I don't know if you run into them uh, years down the line, and um, you I mean, do you have an expectation that they've developed ha habits that you've instilled some sort of habits, even if they've started from basically zero physical training? Um, do you have an expectation or did you just stop having expectations um, for, for some of the, like after you enter your career? I mean, I, I noticed that the people who, who train at my precinct gym are the people who are probably training before they even went to the academy. Um, and those numbers don't really seem to change. It's not like someone just becomes a police officer and then decides that, oh, suddenly I'm going to become um, this physical person that, you know, I never was. Do I have an expectation? Uh, no. Do I have a hope? Absolutely. And that hope uh, really is derived from giving them some perspective. And so when we talk a little bit about the things like the marching to and from class, giving people perspective on what can life be and how hard can an event be and would you rather have the tools to be prepared for that? That's what I, I hope starts instilling in these people a little bit of a shift in mindset or their desire to be a little more physically prepared. Um, once somebody has experienced something that's very, very hard that they, they weren't aware existed before their academy process, that perspective becomes a little more broad and they see things through a, a, a different lens that maybe they need to have a little more gas in their physical tank. So do I expect it? Absolutely not. Do I hope it and, and do I see a, uh, some, some light at the end of the tunnel that they are starting to instill in themselves this need for, for physical well-being? Yes, I, I think that exists. I think it is starting to become more of a lifestyle for a lot of our, our troopers at least, um, but it's all based upon perspective. And for the person who hasn't ever had to do something that made them question their own mortality, uh, that they may not see a need for that that physical skill set, but when that event occurs, um, they they start seeing that light and begin to think, you know, maybe I should do something to take care of myself. Yeah, I mean, and I guess to build on that for me, um, <laughs> it, it, Charlie has probably a better perspective on this than I do, as far as keeping himself sane. Like with with the people that I have not directly worked with, it's the hope that they will you know, take part in something that's going to help move them along that continuum to better fitness. With the cadets I've worked with, it does become a little bit more of an expectation. Because, um, man, honestly, for me, it, it's like I said before, it becomes like a family. Like when you're dealing with them that close on a daily basis, at least it was for me. And, you know, it's kind of like I was talking about with the female officers and things like that. I mean, I, I love them. They're great. I mean, they're like sisters. So it's like, look, I want to make sure you're coming home. Like I have a vested interest in this and I want to make sure that, that you, you guys are all maintaining this throughout your career because I don't want to see something bad happen to you. You know, so for me, it probably gets too personal on that level. And, you know, it's probably healthy for me to check that a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I, I think my expectation and my hope is that starting early with those cadet classes and changing the culture. Uh, of the organization is going to have that downstream effect that we talked about before because realistically within a 10-year cycle you change the face of a, a, an organization in a lot of cases and as these cadets start coming out into the workforce if you know taking care of themselves from a health and, and wellness perspective and trying to maintain their fitness over um, the course of their career becomes the expectation then hopefully you know that changes the entire culture of, of the group and it's just what you do at, at that point and you know I think even you know, the, the other hope I'd have is like even beyond the fitness aspect of it is the health and wellness aspect. You know, so, I mean, we know that, you know, exercise is like medicine in a lot of ways. So, you know, it, it's going to help with your, your ability to, um, you know, sleep, recover, um, you know, all the things that are necessary to have a longer career and be more resilient over time, you know, injury reduction. So, you know, those are the things that, you know, my, my hopes are that they embrace that, that aspect of it in order to make sure that, you know, they you know, have the best career possible. But then when they're done, they actually have a life after their career. You know, so for me, it's, a, it's, a, it's not only hired to retire, but I want to make sure that, that when they're done, that they can actually go on about their life and have a good quality life when they're finished up. And that's a huge component. I don't think a lot of these, these people know that for, for a law enforcement officer, a career law enforcement officer, someone who retires, the average life expectancy after retirement is about six years. And, and then these, these people are dying from leading causes being heart disease. So 
giving them some tools and hopefully them recognizing the need for those tools is just that's just a hope. Uh, if it's not for the fight, they may or may not get in tomorrow, or the car crash, they may or may not get in the next day and the recovery after that. And hopefully it's for their retirement and hopefully seeing them recognizing the need for that is just done through education. I think we're making big headway there, but we'll see. Well, and that's the things like, you know, and I've said this time and time again, like I hope fitness is not something you have to have for your career, <laughs> but it's like carrying your gun with you. It's there if you have to have it, you know, so hopefully it's not a tool that you have to tap into in order to handle your day-to-day -day job, but it's nice to know that there should you get an emergency situation that you've got that tool turned off. Yeah, and I mean, Jake, through all your work, I mean, you know, it's possible for almost everybody to get in that level of condition and that shape. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it may take some commitment. You may have to sweat a little bit. You may have to suffer, but uh, it's doable, you know, male, female, all short, you name it. Like it's, it's possible. Right. So um, go ahead, text. You want to unmute? Him? So I was going to say one really, really interesting thing that we're starting to find out too from all the, the, research that Charlie and I and Ryan uh, Holmes have been doing is that over the course of a career, um, you know, there are certain things that you will see differences in age brackets where, you know, with the older officers, vertical chunk may be a little bit lower, you know, um, push-ups may be a little bit less. I will say this, over overall consistently, they, they still are well above the norm, at least with the, the state patrol or if you look at the average population. So we're not most of them are really, really, really good then. Um, but the thing that has been really interesting is we've taken out age as a covariate and weight and went back in and looked at the data. And what we're finding is, is it's less age and it's more weight that becomes the issue. So really what it gets down to is like, okay, it's not that you're getting older. It's that the people in this age bracket tend to be a little bit heavier. So weight management and a good weight management strategy may be your best opportunity to have a longer your career and, and perform at a higher level. So really, like age is not necessarily the, the be-all, end-all issue, and it's not 100% an excuse. Yeah, and it's all, you know, weight is also a variable that can be controlled by activity. Shocker, right? So, well, hey, Charlie, Jay, thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate you taking your time. So, Power Athlete Nation, if you're out in Colorado, want to be a cop, get that beep test going there, get some push-ups going, because that's what it's going to take. Just kidding, guys. It's a starting point, right? Um, text, Callie, Jay Welly, anything else? Is that a negative? No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just uh, just the plus. we're doing God's work. Yeah, the, the NSCA TSAC uh, conference is just going down in Orlando. April 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. So so there uh, you are, people. If you're a big nerd like Tex and want to talk sets and reps or whatever they do at these <laughs> things and, and then, like, uh, you know, test each other's verticals at the bar, go do that with uh, Tex, Jay, and Charlie. Me and John, we're probably going to be, like, you know, chopping trees down, digging holes, things that the educated type do. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Like I said, if any of the listeners have any questions or anything of that nature, feel free to reach out to us. All right, and then we'll get that, we'll get that contact info and show notes and um, and sent out to or for, for everybody who's listening, right? So, all right, guys, that's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Bye, Callie. Thanks, Joe. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Oh, Thank you. See you, Tex. All right, see you, guys. See you. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Probably the best way to learn about Dr. Dawes is to head to www.elitesportsuniversity.com and sort through Jay's amazing coaching and research findings. Additionally, if you're in the Colorado area and looking for a career in law enforcement or you're currently working in the field and want to see what Charlie has been doing with the State Patrol, head to colorado.gov and search Cadet Trooper Examination for more details. Until next time, bye!